This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Before introducing our speakers, I would like to acquaint some of you briefly with the CAP Center and also the Hamdani World Harmony Lecture Series because I see a number of new faces in the room. Founded in 2002 in honor of a legendary professor of religious studies here at UCSB who also was a former representative from our congressional district, the CAP Center is committed to the belief that public dialogue is vital to democracy and critical for an informed and engaged citizenry. Nonpartisan and non-sectarian, it exists to strengthen the principles on which democracy rests, namely tolerance, respect, civility, and the importance of the common good. To advance these broad and rather idealistic goals, the Center sponsors a diverse set of programs and activities. Free public lectures in the community and at UCSB, which feature well-known speakers on a range of key and timely topics each year. An internship program that sends students to the University of California centers in Washington, D.C. and Sacramento, plus a year-long service program for interns in nonprofit organizations here in Santa Barbara. Undergraduate courses on environmental ethics, biomedical ethics, diversity and justice, as well as ethics, enterprise, and leadership. A quarterly forum called the CAPS Forum on Ethics and Public Policy, which brings distinguished speakers to our campus um, in conjunction with the courses that we are teaching. And finally, a graduate fellowship in support of student research in the area of cultural literacy. Of the various public events that we do present each year, we are especially proud of the Hamdani World Harmony Lecture Series. It was established by Jamal and Seda Hamdani, and the inaugural speaker was Dr. Shirin Abadi. It was an extraordinary experience, as today promises to be. Recognizing that the need for innovative ways to deal with global challenges is part and parcel of uh, our, our own responsibility as an educational institution, the World Harmony Online is intended to serve as a resource for innovative solutions that will enable us to create a nonviolent and equitable world with access to education, health, and technology for all. I encourage you uh, to visit its website, World Harmony Online, and also um, take a look at its mission, which is to inform and mobilize people as global citizens into serving humanity. Today's event will feature two enormously distinguished guests. 
uh, Vivek Wadwa, Washington Post and Bloomsburg Business Week correspondent and columnist, will serve as the interlocutor in a far-reaching conversation with Ahmad Zawil, a winner of the 1999 Nobel Peace Prize in Chemistry, and Linus Pauling Professor of Chemical Physics and Professor of Physics at Caltech. Mr. Wadwa is Vice President of Academics and Innovation at Singularity University. He also serves as a fellow at the Arthur and Tony Remby Rock Center for Corporate Governance at Stanford University, Director of Research at the Center for Entrepreneurship and Research Commercialization at the Pratt School of Engineering at Duke University, and a distinguished visiting scholar at the Hall Institute of Global Learning at Emory University. And Dr. Zwell currently serves as the director of the Moore Foundation Center for Physical Biology at Caltech. In 2009, President Obama uh, appointed him to the President's Council of Advisors of the White House and also named him as the first United States science envoy to the Middle East. He's the recipient of many international awards, including the Wolf Prize in Chemistry, the Tolman Medal, the Robert A. Welch Award, the Priestley Medal from the American Chemical Society, and most recently, the Davy Medal from the Royal Society. Please welcome me in joining them. Thank you. Thank you. You know, we're going to be talking about the future of humanity, but uh, Dr. Zewell and I were talking first about the future of the world. Before we worry about the big picture, let's start with what's happening in the Middle East. Right now, we're talking about uh, a very important part of the world, smoldering. You have rockets and bombs, and uh, you know, that could ignite uh, World War III, the way things are going. Mm. What do you think is happening there? Well, let's look at the bright side first. Right. Is there a bright side? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, first, I want to thank uh, the uh, Hamdani uh, effort and foundation for doing this lectureship for all of us, and uh, I'm delighted to see the Chancellor here, and uh, Mrs. Chancellor, and, and uh, they are friends, and also my former president, which I can see here, uh, here he is, and uh, Doris also here, so, uh, and I see Fred Anson, he used to be the my former chair of the department, so my salary was dependent on him. So I'm delighted to see... So all the bosses are here. That's right. <laughs> but because they are former, they are not going to control my life. All anymore. right, good. So, uh, the best boss is the former boss. That's right. right. Well, I think, I think the Middle East is witnessing a major change right now. Um, the concept of the Arab Spring is, is a sweeping. I don't know if this word means too much, but it's stuck now. So the Arab Spring is going on. We're seeing some fruit of all of this. In Egypt, for example, we had a, a recent election for the president, Morsi. Uh, I think that that is the first time in almost 60 years that Egypt uh, can elect in a democratic way. Um, not too different from what's happening here in the United States. Uh, Egypt also is trying now to 
build democratic institutions. Uh, but this is not uh, easy. Uh, if you look at history and you see what happened after revolutions, uh, these are non-trivials to uh, have all of this uh, being smooth. You have conflicts. You have conflicts between different political parties. You have conflict between uh, religious parties and secular or civil parties. Uh, uh, right now, everybody in Egypt, because you look, and we'll talk about this, I guess, on social media, and they see the Americans are rich, so they expect by having the revolution and achieving democracy that everybody is going to be rich and everybody is going to have cars and everybody is going to. So the expectations is very high. Um, I was told by the prime minister there was 4,200 strikes in the last 40 days. Wow. Uh, because everybody really feels that that's what democracy is about. So I think you're seeing all of this. I, I'm not seeing that it's all bad. I'm, by nature, I'm an optimist. But I think that at the end, uh, <clears throat> you didn't expect any difference because if you have a dictatorship or a totalitarian regimes, uh, at the end, that's what you expect uh, for 30 years or so. You know, I'm getting a taste of Egyptian democracy and social media. The word is that uh, social media fermented the revolution there and lit the fire not only in Egypt but in other parts of the Middle East. And it's certainly uh, creating havoc in China for the Chinese government. I just tweeted about the fact that I'm going to, you know, I'm honored to be uh, uh, doing this uh, discussion with you over here. And I don't have any Egyptian friends. And suddenly I was bombarded with, feet, with <laughs> positive and negative comments from all over Europe. I mean, what's going on over there? How is it that Egypt, of all the countries, is so, so much into social media, into, into Twitter, of all the things? Yeah. I, I think this is the thing that I'm learning, uh, because my generation was different. Right. I didn't use it. I noticed you're not on Twitter. Uh, no. But <laughs> I, I was actually... Uh, uh, I was from, you know, the... Uh, was the youth during the revolution in Egypt, and I lived the whole uh, thing. And it was absolutely remarkable. Uh, the all holding these devices and SMS and communicating with each other. And so I could see in Tahrir Square they can fill it by the social media. But I think what I'm learning is that it's one thing that you can bring people together, but it's another to be uh, using this power to think about structuring something useful. Mm -hmm. And uh, social media doesn't do that. So the, the human brain is still needed, and the human thinking is still needed, that you sit down together and you try to come up with an overall uh, plan. And that's what I have not seen through the social media. There's another aspect also of the social media that I'm not comfortable with. Uh, the language that I see on Twitter and Facebook and uh, uh, I certainly would not have uh, written or speak this kind of language uh, during my education time. It's, uh, it's uh, below the level of good education. You know, I get uh, death threats because I'm so vocal about immigration. I've written a book called The Immigrant Exodus about America's flawed immigration policies. I have several people who harass me almost all the time on Twitter. What I've learned to do is to simply ignore that because that is you know, 0.001% 0 .001 of the population. Mm -hmm. 
But uh, my view is that it can do a lot of good. I have access to the world's resources. It's just the fact that I tweet once that I'm going to be with Dr. Zawell, and suddenly I have uh, people from Egypt now contacting me, wanting to uh, connect with me and so on. I think it's a very powerful force. I mean, the question is, how do we now harness it to help Egypt evolve itself and the rest of the Middle East evolve itself and, and gain more knowledge? Because I think a lot, a lot of the, the problems that are happening are because of ignorance. You, you, know, you said that they uh, started learning about American uh, values and, and um, the, you know, the fact that America is rich and so on. The, expect, the expectations were raised. But if they spent more time on social media, they would realize that there's poverty in America, that there's the same desperation in parts of America that there is in parts of the Middle East. How do you now take it from um, just being so excited about the positives to now having a balance and to understanding America for what it is? That it's not one evil empire that's out to get Islam. That's really, you know, many people like them with different views. Some say stupid things. You have some extremists who burn the Quran. And then you have a lot of great people with solid values who are very tolerant and, and wise. How do we now get this across and how do we educate the Middle East on this? Well, you know, I, I belong to a society called the American Philosophical Society. And it, was, it started by Benjamin Franklin. And I liked actually the, uh, what it says about its useful knowledge. And I think there's a major difference between useful knowledge and just information. Information is everywhere. And so the question is that how do you transform this information into useful knowledge? And that's not what I see in many cases. It's good that you're getting information and you're tweeting with other information. But the real issue is how do you really transform this into useful knowledge? And in my opinion, you cannot do this unless you have a good education system. If you have a good education system, you know how to look at all of this information. And this is not any different, by the way, from the old days of my generation when I went to the library and I saw, uh, you know, thousands of books around me and it has an information. But very few will be able to utilize this information in order to create useful knowledge. And so I think probably, most probably, the world will evolve to learn how to deal with the you told me uh, earlier that you get about 1,000 messages a day or so. Between email and, 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 and Twitter tweet. and Facebook, it's about 1,000 right. messages a day. Right, and the question right. is that uh, your time and how do you synthesize out of all of that something that's really right. uh, helpful. I think ultimately the education that we are going in the direction of more and more education through the Internet. Right and the involvement of Facebook and Wikipedia and the uh, Twitters even and all of that. So the role of the university is going to change. And the communication we're going to get is going to be through the Internet. And in fact, I attend many places in Washington where people now are thinking about the future of the universities in the coming 50 years, including UC Santa Barbara. I mean, what would you do really? in the age of the Twitters and Facebook and, and all of this learning. And now, uh, you know, a, a Nobel laureate at Santa Barbara can tomorrow give a whole course uh, in physics. Uh, and I know some of my friends, you know, here in physics. And that course will be uh, benefiting not only the students at Santa Barbara, but millions of people around the globe. And they can take the test and everything like this, and it will be cheaper than attending UC Santa Barbara. So the question is that, what are you going to do? This is a major challenge. Right. A, 
how do you synthesize useful knowledge, and B, the challenges of education, of electronic education, if you right. like, right. in the coming 20 or 50 years. Yeah. You know, it's not 20 to 50 years. Um, this is uh, one thing people don't realize. Uh, right now, India is a land of 1.1 billion people. The 911 million cell phones in India right now. China has a billion cell phones out of 1.3 billion people, which means that the poorest of the poor are now connected to cell phones. You would have seen this in Egypt as well, that uh, not too long ago, as recently as 10, 15 years ago, uh, villagers were disconnected from each other because they would have to go to cities to work, and families had no way of communicating. So they would send letters back every two or three months, small pieces of paper which they couldn't read themselves because they're illiterate. So they would uh, have someone else write those letters and communication. They were basically cut off from each other and the rest of the world. Now they simply pick up the phone and dial for practically nothing. So you have the poorest of the poor um, uh, connected. The next revolution is, going to ha- is happening now. This device over here is the world's cheapest computer. $20 is what it's being sold for to um, Indian kids right now by the Indian government. The production cost is $35. The government is buying it for $40. They're cutting it to half and giving it to uh, 100,000 students this month, another 5.6 million over the next few months. But this is going to create a revolution like we've never seen before because now not only are those uh, villagers talking to each other uh, using voice, they're going to Skype calls with each other. They're going to be um, sending videos to each other. They're now going to be able to watch your videos on uh, YouTube. They'll be able to come to UC Santa Barbara's website and download every lecture that that there is, and they have access to the same knowledge that um, anyone in America has. This decade, not 20 to 50 years, this is what I need to correct you on, this decade, you're going to have another 3 billion people coming online. This is the first time in human history that you've had people connected to each other. When, when most of the people in this room grew up, the only knowledge you had was from your families, from your parents, from your neighbors, from your teachers, and your preachers. That was your entire universe of knowledge. If you were rich, you had an Encyclopedia Britannica. That was like the ultimate trophy, is that you owned an Encyclopedia Britannica, and that had the knowledge of the world. And, and people who had that were the, you know, a small, small segment of society. Today, the poorest of the poor, within the next two or three or four years, you're going to have uh, literally beggars in India who have access to the same knowledge that President Ronald Reagan did when he was in power. They have access to the same information, timely information, and they have access to the world's resources. What's going to happen to this? I mean, this is a great opportunity and a great risk. I mean, what do you think is going to happen? Well, but I I think I'm making a distinction, maybe perhaps unlike you. I'm making a distinction between the ability to connect and in a huge number, in the billions, and the ability to learn something. That's a different story. Uh, and and the, the really looking at the structure of universities, as I said, it's not clear it's going to be uh, only short time, but universities have to begin thinking, what is the role of the university in the 21st century? But devices like this, the value of them, where I see it, is that it is remarkable that still we have illiteracy as high as 35% in certain countries. It is remarkable that in some countries, 70% of the women are illiterate. And, and therefore, where I see this could be fantastic is, is to eradicate illiteracy around the world. Because it's a very simple device, it's cheaper, the government can pay for some of it. 
and you can learn and uh, you can't move in the world we're living in today without I mean the illiteracy now that somebody like me is in, in dealing with computers you know so I think that that's where I uh, I see this but I'm, I'm trying to make a distinction very clear here is that information and connectivity is fine but the question is that what are we benefiting from this we have to ask this critical question whether it's a university or a school or in even the so-called conflicts between different things. I mean, you know, I've been this, uh, I'm at Singularity University where we uh, teach these advances. Uh, the founder of Singularity, uh, Ray Kurzweil, who's one of the greatest <coughs> features of our time, and, and Peter DeMandis, who founded the XPRIZE and um, SpaceX and so on. They're the eternal optimists. They keep talking about all these advances and how we'll solve grand, humanity's grand challenges and so on. And I keep sitting back and saying, well, if, you know, let's take manufacturing as an, as an example. Um, I'll take a detour and explain uh, to the audience what's happening. Do you know about these advances? But um, take robotics, for example. We, when we were young, we used to dream about uh, Rosie, the, uh, the housekeeper. Mm. We used to watch uh, Will Smith and the robot on Lost in Space. We had androids and Cylons. Those things never happened. We sort of became pessimistic and assumed that this was all science fiction. The reason why those things didn't happen wasn't because it was not technologically feasible. To have, you know, we used to, when we were young, we used to have these erector sets. We used to have these mechano sets. We would have these pulleys and um, um, uh, pieces of metal that you could connect with motors and so on. So connecting a, a device that moves isn't hard. The uh, voice recognition, face recognition, uh, you know, the communication, the intelligence of it was so complex that you literally would have needed a computer the size of this entire hall to do what you can do on uh, Siri right now, which is voice recognition, to do face recognition, which, which your iPhone does. So the computing power has increased exponentially to the point it's practically free now. So now robotics is possible. The result is that um, you have very sophisticated robots milking cows, doing, farmery, uh, doing farming. You have robotic jets. You can also now, um, a, a company called Rethink Robotics announced about two months ago a robot called Baxter that has two arms which can do human-like movements, a face which tells you it's emotion, and it has sensors that can detect everything around it. In other words, it's, it can do what a human being can do. It costs twenty to $2,000. It doesn't sleep. It doesn't drink. It doesn't complain. Um, it doesn't have any emotion. So it, all it'll do is work over and over and over again, which means that the cost of labor is now practically zero. I've written an article for Foreign Policy magazine and for um, Forbes both of which were variants of each other, we said that it's the end of China manufacturing, that over this decade, manufacturing will come back to the United States. The problem is that jobs won't come back because what we're talking about is very highly automated manufacturing which requires highly skilled jobs. What do you see happening to the USA and happening to the Middle East and the rest of the world in this highly automated... Because I'm going to ask you two or three questions on this front. I'm going to ask you about jobs... I'm going to, then I'm going to ask you about, get into your field of expertise, which is biology, because there are a lot of advances happening there. I'm going to challenge you next on, on that. But first, let's talk about jobs. Where, where do you see the jobs? This is something I've debated with Ray Kurzweil in my Washington Post article. He has all of his rosy projections, and I don't buy them. I don't see where the jobs are going to be. Mm. I'm hoping that you're more optimistic and you have some good answers. Well, I don't know if I have a better answer, but I think... You're I, a Nobel Prize winner. You must have the answer. Well... <laughs> That's one of the problems with Nobel Prize winners. You know, they're supposed to know everything, which right. is not true. 
Uh, but let me just say uh, first about I have no doubt that the technology and science uh, will continue to develop and progress. You know, there are all kinds of things about the end of science. There are books now you can read about the end of science, feeling that because we now know quantum mechanics and the relativity and we can calculate things and predict things that it's, it's over. I, I don't agree with that. I think that a young person here at UC Santa Barbara might discover something that we never thought about before. So I think science and technology will continue. And as I see it, it will be from the atom still, which people think that we understand everything, uh, from the atoms to going to outer space. Uh, you look at the United States now having this robot, robot in, uh, you're talking about robots, I mean robot on Mars and curiosity, and this is something that it just, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I personally witnessed that at Caltech, at JPL, and if seeing this with that precision going into through the atmosphere of Mars and landing exactly in the same spot, that shows incredible innovation and ingenuity in, in what this country have done over the last 50, 60 years. Uh, I think in the life sciences, and we might get into this, I mean, discoveries are almost by the month, you know, from stem cells all the way to uh, trying to create new life in a single cell. So I have no doubt about this. But I don't think that's a problem here. Uh, we know that the developed world is going to be able to invest more and get into more science and more technology. I have concerns about the developing world, and I wrote op-eds about this, especially this country, and maybe we can touch on it. Uh, but I think the main problem that I see threatening our globe before we get into uh, your subject, uh, one is a huge gap between the rich and the poor. It's very good and very well that we invent new things and make money. Mm. But when few of us make huge amount of money and the majority of us are not able to live, we're going to create a gulf, a big one, and we're going to have world instability. Right now, more than 80% of the people on this globe, from the 7 billion, are in the so-called population of the half-nots. They don't have access to water, they, they clean water, the, uh, the income is about one or two dollars a day, uh, they are frustrated. So this is a whole big area that we as a people on this globe have to look at, even with the huge advances we're making in technology and in science. The second point, I think, is the, what we're seeing now in the rise of fanatism. Uh, in religious beliefs and the like. And this is, this is something that is not only in the West, but is happening also in the East and in the Midwest, in the Middle East. Uh, and that concerns me a lot. So again, we might develop all kinds of advances. But, you know, people are worrying about Iran and the nuclear bomb and, 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 and the like. And, this. and the way I see it, actually, when nations get the nuclear bomb, like Pakistan and... Uh, Israel and others, I mean, I think they have to be very careful about using this nuclear bomb, because if they use it, there's another country is going to be uh, countering the attack. Right. So in many ways, that's not my concern. But my concern is that the technology has advanced so much now that individuals, right. individuals can cause a huge damage, right. huge damage. 
I mean, the dirty bombs that people predicted, for example, that, you, you know, you could, you could really cripple New York by just uh, some dirt from radioactive materials, uh, viruses. You can design right now. Um, you know, you folks may have read about DNA sequencing happened about a decade ago with Craig Venter beat the U.S. government in the human genome product to sequence the genome. It cost several billion dollars, depending on how you count it, to get that far. Today, you can get a complete human genome sequence for about three or four thousand dollars. Within a few months, you're talking about a thousand dollars. Within two or three years, you're talking about a hundred dollars. Five years, you'll have iPhone cases that sequence the genome. So that's possible right now. At the same time, synthetic biology is advancing exponentially, which means that you can write DNA. You can use um, a design tool to design a new type of uh, virus and print it. And the, uh, the scary thing is that kids are doing it. There are contests called iGEM, in which high school kids are uh, they're combining the, this, the uh, gene of a firefly with that of a tree to build a tree that lights up at night, for example. Mayo Clinic has developed this cat that lights up at night, okay? Uh, the Russians are resurrecting the woolly mammoth. Um, uh, you know, major, uh, uh, you know, an elephant-like uh, uh, thing through DNA and so on. So all of these things are now becoming possible. So you're right that um, we're dealing with, uh, you know, a kid might accidentally create a doomsday virus. How do we deal with that? What is, uh, you know? Well, that, that is a big question, and I'm not really sure we, we know the answer. And I, in fact... You probably heard President Obama talking about, you know, the concern about uh, cyber threat. I mean, you know, we don't think of these things, but we are worrying about nuclear bomb and we're worrying about somebody uh, attacking and this and that. But, you know, all what it takes is a couple of brilliant people. And if they get into cyberspace that you get thousands uh, messages from a day, uh, you can imagine what will happen to the rest of us. We'll be completely crippled. Look at the head of the CIA. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, the way he was brought down by, by technology, yeah. right? So th- that's what the risk factor is, that with every good, there's a bad. Yeah, there's always. A, uh, I tell my children, you know, the, the knife that you use in the kitchen, it can be good and bad. You can cut your finger, and, but you can use it well. So I don't think that that's a... But, the, you know, regarding the uh, system biology, even in this country there are some issues that the answer is not clear uh, to. i give you an example that uh, is being discussed now. Uh, <clears throat> there's, I think, a group of uh, uh, scientists from the Netherlands and do you all know about this uh, virus that was uh, being transferred among the, uh, I think, the avian, I think it was called. And it basically, it, it's uh, transferred among the chickens and the like. And the question, if it comes into the humans, it's a very serious problem, very serious problem. And so this group of scientists in the Netherlands have kept doing different mutations in this virus, and now they can actually, in principle, actually they have shown you can transfer it from the animal into the humans. Now you can imagine what the consequences of this on millions and millions uh, in this country. Now you have a dilemma, right? Should you stop this kind of research? Or should you continue with this research and have government regulations? And until today, this is a big conflict. So the technology comes. From my point of view, there is a triad. And the countries that are going to do very well, uh, I'm reducing it and simplifying it into triad. There is basic research, and I am a very strong 
believer in this, and I know the chancellor here is also a big believer in this. I think this idea in this country that we know now everything and that we can focus on technology and uh, we are not going to spend money for curiosity-driven research, I think that would be the beginning of the end if we do that. Because technology has its luster. You know, you can, you can be very excited about the gadget and so on. But the, the bread and butter for this country's innovation is basic research. So there is this corner of basic research. Then you develop that to produce new technology and new innovations, like the one we're seeing that transformed our life. But then you have the society itself. Because if the society is not aware of these developments, the good and the bad, as you mentioned, and uh, what can we do with them? And uh, there is even now, there will be the question of the ethical questions that you have to ask, and the religious questions. I don't think people should be shying of this, because even in this country, I claim, uh, you know, there's at least one-third of the people who are believers. So you cannot ignore this. Well, Bush banned um, uh, stem cell research Well, but you cannot States. ignore it. Uh, you go to a country right. like Egypt, the majority of the people are believers. They vary in their uh, beliefs. Uh, so I don't think we can just simply say this is not an important factor. So it comes to the ethical, the religious, and how the society is going to deal with this in order to handle the technology and in order to understand the importance of uh, basic research. Right. Now, we're talking about the university system. Now, I'm going to be critical about the university research system now, since you're uh, uh, you know, a renowned researcher. We do a lot of, spend a lot of money on basic research, but the way the system is structured, very little of it ever sees the light of day. That um, academics are incented, incentivized to publish papers versus commercialize their technologies. So, we may already have invented the next MRI, the next uh, internet, the next semiconductor, except it doesn't reach the light of the day because of the way the universities are structured. How do we fix that? Well, let me tell you, right. I've been at Caltech for uh, 35 years. Mm-hmm. And I believe we had a wonderful system. And let me share it with you. And I, personally, I followed this with a recent invention. And I think the more we're going to deviate from this in this country, there are some issues that I'm concerned about. Caltech is a research-oriented university. We have undergraduates, and we care about them, and they are part of the education process. But the focus of Caltech is to produce new knowledge. Now, when I came as an assistant professor in 1976, uh, it's just the sky was the limit. I can think of anything, even esoteric. And in this op-ed, I said it was esoteric. Nobody cared about what I was trying to do. But the key here is that as a professor working with a research group, seeking to produce new knowledge, if you don't have this burden that you have to produce something that has to have a value for the society, that's how innovations comes about. That's how discoveries come about. Any researchers, and I know there are distinguished people here, who say they knew what they're going to discover, I don't believe it. We all wander around and find our own ways and so on. But the university, like Caltech, it says, if you have an invention, and we feel and you feel it's important, we have an attorney's office and patent office, and we'll take that invention, 
and knows how to deal with it to the outside world, and you go back to your laboratory, and you will get few percents of the money that we will make. So we have a system in place. Now, I think, to me, that is the most ideal system. And well, we have, if I can just make, finish the point, uh, and we had recently invented something that the Caltech felt it's very important, and indeed, they took it to the patent, it went out now, and it's being manufactured right now, and we'll all benefit. My concern about you getting the university professors all involved in the commercial enterprise, A, we are not good in the commercial enterprise. At least 90% of us are not good in the commercial enterprise. B, is the fact is that you're really transforming now the university which is trying to seek new knowledge into being in the business. Well, and that is a huge concern for Now me. I'm going to put my entrepreneurship hat on. I founded two companies before I became an academic. Here's what the problem is. If you're now uh, a venture capitalist or an entrepreneur or someone who wants to <coughs> convert idea into um, invention, into the market, to the yeah. market, you try dealing with the university technology transfer offices, it's easier to deal with the Egyptian government or the Indian government than to deal with those folks because um, they are so, I mean, it's a bunch of lawyers you're dealing with. They're trying to squeeze every little uh, ounce of um, life that you have out of you in return for what they're giving you. And then you get this invention which is useless to you. Patent is useless. You need to get the professor, the inventors working with you on converting into something useful. And the professor is simply all they're interested in is you're interested in writing more papers so you can get tenure. Uh, you don't have to worry about it, but that's what most junior professors are worried about. They're not worried about commercializing the, the invention. The system is not geared up to, uh, uh, to commercialize what you've just Well, I, I think you can, you can optimize it, and right. certainly Caltech in recent time has become more alert of what you're making and modified it, and they become much better system now in terms. But I think you also the other uh, case is of concern to me because if if professors become uh, so involved in the commercialization of things, uh, where is their duty also as academicians? And uh, let me ask you something, right. since you you know about it, if I were to be a professor, and you said to me, I'm going to give you a million dollars to do a research on a new drug, right? right? And uh, I will support your students and this and that. Okay, so I come, and I have a group of 20 people, and do you think I'm really going to let them go to research with a curiosity-driven research? Or do you think that a priori, I want to get into this drug and I will make many of them be working on this in order. So it's a but very delicate a, situation. If I'm giving a million dollars, if you're getting public money, you're getting it to advance uh, uh, the Knowledge. economy, okay, to solve real problems, not to sit there and uh, uh, you know have fun in academia or to just to teach. Society wants uh, something out of it. The, the investors want something out of it. And there's what the problem is. That the, I, I've written several articles about it. I've taken a lot of fire from my academic friends because I'm looking at it from the commercial point of view. If I'm going to invest in basic research, I'm doing it because I want some results from it. If at the end of the day, you and you know, the scientists say that, look, it's not our concern, that's your problem. We're here to teach, we're here to research, there's a mismatch between um, um, 
what's expected and what's delivered. And that's the, the problem with, um, with our system. Yeah, I'm not sure I, I agree with that point. I think <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that because I think, uh, you know, Rob, I, having dinner last night and I was mentioning the, uh, you know, the Nobel laureate in economics, Robert, Robert uh, Solo from MIT, you know, he pointed out that the, uh, the real force behind the GDP of America over the last 50 years or so before he died uh, is the fact it's about 20% capital and uh, 80% uh, innovations. And the fact of the matter is, it is very well known that American innovations, especially after the Second World War, came from absolutely investment in basic research. Because these people wander around in all kinds of directions. Nobody would have thought that these two researchers at Bell Labs, one of American jewels, in my opinion, mm-hmm. you know, they would be playing with the electrons and the materials. Right. And to, for you as an entrepreneur, you will say, that's a wasting of time. But then all of a sudden they discover this, that this material is switching the current on and off. And that's the source of the digital revolution in America. What I'll argue so, is that there may be a thousand uh, so, times more inventions like that which haven't been commercialized because the, the researchers, the scientists, the professors went back to teaching versus taking this invention and turning it into um, uh, Well, you need, you, need, you need to, as you said, you need to fix the, 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 the output part. And I think universities now are realizing this. I frankly even concern about the universities right now in terms of the amount of time that the leaders of the university are spending on fundraising. I think it's just, it's too much. I think I would like the leader to spend more time on where are we going with education and what are we going to do with research. But it's all now driven by how much money you're going to get. And uh, it shouldn't be for a country as rich as America. I agree. So on this thing, I'll leave leave it with a compromise, saying that we we, we need to provide (laughs) adequate funding so that um, uh, professors and and university heads don't have to become salespeople. Yes. That's a waste of their talent. That's it. But on the other hand, we do now have to come up with a better system which takes um, the research the into idea, and that system is broken right now. So yeah. we need to figure out somehow creatively how to do it. It needs to be done on a university-by-university basis because every university is different. There's no standard university. Every university has a different culture and values and has different problems. So let's compromise on that. Okay. Now, I'm going <laughs> to... I, I want to get back to... Um, I didn't answer, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get back to um, one of your key fields, biology. Now, we agreed that um, synthetic biology and the advances that are happening in, uh, in computing combined with medicine, combined with, with um, uh, you know, being able to print uh, these types of, of, of you know, DNA and so on, create major risks. What should we do here to stop that killer virus? We could have, have the bubonic plague being reinvented many times worse. We can have um, uh, you know, new types of Ebola being invented by researchers out of ignorance. That, that they, they're sitting in the ivory towers in, the, in academia saying, we're going to experiment. All we care about is research, research, research. We don't worry about the rest of the world. How do we stop that? Do we stop science from advancing? What's going to happen over here? No, I, you can't. And as I said, it's, it's, uh, there are very touchy issues even coming up to the level of the president of the nation, namely that what would you do with something like this that can affect 100 million? Or billions, literally. Uh, Well, I'm talking about the U.S., for example, alone. And uh, so it's it's not straightforward. But on the other hand, I think that if you look historically, even the nuclear bomb, 
I mean, you know, uh, Caltech, I said, was the uh, now late uh, Bob Christie, and this is was one of the things that's really the, some of the best minds in the world were thinking about. Is this a good yeah. uh, device to create? You know, and uh, but what I'm trying to say is that the more the society is uh, debating the issues and addressing the issues, and the more education we have in the society, the better off we are. But the issues are complex. There is no recipes, one, two, three, that what we should do. So we can't stop the research, but, but going on the current path, we, we, we could be in trouble. Uh, yeah, we yeah. cannot stop research. I mean, you know, this latest Nobel Prize, and by the way, I'm not an expert on biology. I just right. cross fields. Uh, I read some of your work. It's amazing. I mean, uh, you seem to be an expert in everything. Well, <laughs> but, uh, but I, think, I think that the, you know, the latest Nobel Prize in medicine, for example, is unbelievable. I mean, you know, you take a piece of my skin as an adult, and by biochemical reactions, you can bring it back to be embryonic stem cells. Mm. I mean, that's unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. So we can, we're going to synthesize your heart and do other things. And so, so this is the kind of things that I think will have to continue, even if you said... We are not going to invest in stem cells. Somebody else is going to do it. Right. Well, let's, I mean, um, we're going to open up to questions in about five minutes or so, but I want to throw some thoughts out and revisit something we started talking about very briefly. Right now, um, we're pessimistic about uh, world wars breaking out about water. You know, coming from the Middle East, water is your most precious resource. The, the forecast that chi- by 2050, China will be 40% desert. Uh, there, India-Pakistan, uh, the, the you know, predictions that World War III will break out over there because of water rights and so on. <laughs> but the irony is that 71% of the Earth's surface is water. If you were an extraterrestrial landing here, you would call this a, you know, a water-rich uh, endowed planet. There's more water here than almost anywhere else in the universe. The problem is that we can't convert that water into drinking water. We can't synthesize it. Um, but... You know, why can't we do that? All it takes to convert the dirtiest water into distilled water is to boil it, right? It takes energy. So energy is the next, you know. So if we had unlimited energy, we'd have unlimited water, okay? And if we had unlimited water and unlimited uh, energy, we'd have unlimited food because you can do hydrophonic uh, gardening and so on. Now, there are already predictions that America is going to be exporting more oil than Saudi Arabia in the next few years or so. At the same time, the cost of solar, I mean, we're negative about solar as a society because of Solandra and all the politics that went into it. But solar is now cheaper than diesel is in India. You know, you, I'm sure you've been there and you've seen that you have diesel generators everywhere polluting. Solar is now cheaper than diesel in India as of this year because prices dropped about 30% last year. Uh, according to the European Photovoltaic Association, solar will be cheaper than grid next year in Italy. Within three or four years, it will be cheaper than grid in Germany and in Switzerland. By the end of this decade, at current rate, solar will be cheaper than grid in the United States, which means that this decade, we won't need our utilities anymore. We'll be generating our own, uh, our own energy. So, uh, and at the same time, you have many advances happening. Craig Venter, the guy who sequenced the genome, is now developing a form of algae that he can convert into petroleum. He believes that by the end of this decade, he'll be generating enough uh, gasoline from algae to power a quarter million cars. So... Based on all of these advances that are happening, just, you know, just looking uh, linearly at, at what's happening here, we'll solve the problem of energy this decade. Um, Dean Kamen, the person who, sequ- who um, invented the Segway and the insulin pump, has a device that I've, you know, which, is, uh, which I've seen, which is amazing. It's the size of a refrigerator. 
100 watts of energy it consumes, less than a hairdryer. It'll go for seven years without maintenance. It'll purify 1,000 liters of water a day, 1,100 liters of water a day. It was just tested by Coca-Cola in, uh, in uh, Ghana. They took it to five villages. It worked flawlessly for six months. He's now commercializing it in, uh, in several countries. It's going to be commercialized. So that itself could solve the problem of water. And the number of other solutions for water. So what I'm saying is that if you just look at the advances that are happening, it's very likely that in this decade we solve the problem of energy, food, water, and um, we, you know, we create abundance in all of these things. But the question is, how do we now take this prosperity and abundance and, and uh, benefit the world from it? How do we take it to the Middle East? Will society evolve fast enough? Do you, do you see us as a society being able to evolve fast enough to share this prosperity, share this abundance? Well, right. <clears throat> that's something that really haunts me. I don't know the answer. I don't know either. But, right. uh, I keep but saying I think... you're the genius over here. I, I, I came here <laughs> expecting to get all these answers. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I, I think actually you are very optimistic uh, because the, there are some problems, there are some technologies that are, I call it uh, simple technologies. And I think you can develop these and with ease, such as what you mentioned about purifying the water. But there are very complex problems that, quite frankly, the best minds around the world don't know how to deal with it. Uh, I mean, you know, President Nixon said, war and cancer. And we invested billions of dollars in it. We didn't solve it. It's not that easy. I think the issue of the, uh, the energy, for example, Yes, there are progress in the, the efficiency of the photovoltaics, and now the Germans are using the thermal in many, many directions. The Chinese now are the world's best exporters of the uh, photovoltaic devices for the rest of the world. These are all good things, but we haven't solved the energy problem. But if we just go on the current path, uh, you know, just at the way things have gone for the last 20 years, we go for another five or seven years, we solve the problem of energy in the United States and the rest of the world, just on solar. But I think, I, if, if I recall, and many Americans here recall, every American president in their campaign, they will say, we will become energy independent, uh, self-sufficient, and we haven't achieved But the that. U.S. will. I mean, just based on uh, fracking, I mean, uh, the shale extraction, there are solid forecasts that the U.S. will become a net exporter of oil in this decade. But the, yeah. the, you have to keep in mind that right. the, the increase in the energy consumption is huge. I just read an article that the biggest challenge right. facing China, the biggest challenge is its consumption of energy right now. Seventy percent of it is dependent on foreign uh, uh, import. So the point is that I agree that there is progress, but these are very complex uh, problems. You know, there is a prediction now, as you know, uh, for example, as far as the, uh, uh, the war for energy. I mean, uh, many will argue that the reason the United States went to Iraq is because to secure the oil fields. Uh, that's really exactly why right. that happened. So there are wars. Right. I think that I just read a book. Uh, people are expecting the next war is going to be in water. Right. You see, the conflict, especially in but the But that's Middle what I'm East. saying. But yeah. On the water thing, yeah. I'm telling you that, uh, you know, I also went to Chile. Another company called AIC uh, has developed this plasma-based purifier. That device could be produced for $50. Mm-hmm. The cartridge costs a dollar. It'll kill the bacteria in the water, that, which is responsible for 60% of the Earth's, you know, waterborne viruses, diseases caused by uh, water infections. That pro- product works as well. I've drunk that water. So what I'm saying is these are just two things I've seen which 
are working today, ready to be commercialized, which could solve the problem of water. So there are a lot of advances happening. My iPhone has more computing power than existed on the entire planet the day I was born. Think about it. This is unimaginable. This would have been a Cray supercomputer version 1.0. This is more powerful than that Cray supercomputer was. What does it do? It sits in my pocket waiting for me to tweet or to check email. Okay? On my, um, I'm, a, I'm a heart patient. On my uh, uh, phone, I have these two leads. I touch them. I launch an app. It does an EKG for me. This is a, a cardiologist as well. Right now, um, the EKG gets emailed to my cardiologist who reads it. But I, I, if you look at IBM Watson, which defeated um, um, Jeopardy champions, IBM is now working on coming up with uh, uh, teaching it, uh, taking it to medical school, literally. The same type of learning that they did to, to uh, win Jeopardy, they're now programming it with medical information. I would much rather trust IBM Watson to read my AKG than my drunken cardiologist. <laughs> I mean, uh, Watson doesn't, I mean, I love the guy. My, my cardiologist is great. He doesn't, I'm sure he doesn't drink that much, but, but the fact is he's a human being. I can check my EKG 10 times a day and just keep uploading it and having Watson check it. Uh, um, one of the companies on the second floor of Singularity University where I teach is developing the Star Trek tricorder. There's an uh, prize, a $10 million prize, to develop a, an iPhone-like device which can detect disease and better than a, a, a panel of board-certified physicians. That, I have no doubt, I've already seen the pieces of that being coming together. The labs on a chip, which I've seen, which can detect um, infectious diseases. All of these technologies are happening right now. It's, uh, we, you know, it's very easy to be pessimistic. There's so many advances happening in so many fields, and they're converging. So you have um, a confluence of events happening, and I'm, you know, which basically lead me to believe that this is going to be the most innovative decade in human history, and we will solve the grand challenges of humanity. Yet we're pessimistic because we keep looking at, you know, I've also read, read the articles about world war breaking out over water and so on, but I also know that the water problem is being solved. Again, on energy, I think there was a front-page New York Times article in the last week which talked about USA being energy independent this decade. No one could have imagined three years ago we could not have predicted that the U.S. would produce more oil than Saudi Arabia. It was considered to be impossible. Yet it's a reality that's already happening right now. So there's so many amazing things happening I think, on the positive. Uh, yeah, yeah right. no, surely. Right. It's just that you have to look to the... You know, what's the consequences of this? That, that's that's, what, that's yeah. what I was hoping you'd be able to help yeah, me with. Yeah, yeah. Because I can see those advances. I can't see the consequences. All these issues that you've alluded to, the ethnic, the comfort level that people have killing each other rather than using these technologies for coming together are in the present tense clearly demonstrating that we are much more comfortable killing each other than living. So I, I really, uh, you've kind of already answered some of these questions, but I throw it out maybe with a little different spin and invite you. But I think he's, he's dead right, though. We don't discuss this enough as a society. And it's always been the case whenever we build technology that with this good, you know, with removing the typewriter, you remove jobs, okay? But on the other hand, you made people more productive. So with 3D printing, with robotics and AI, we're going to uh, make America more efficient. We're going to bring manufacturing back here. But then we're going to cause Chinese manufacturing to cave in. And you're going to cause massive unemployment over there and unrest. And the Chinese are going to now become more nationalistic. And uh, that could create you know, World War III on its own. So everything has a balance. And, and you know, like I said, this is the challenge of humanity to be able to cope with these, with these questions and and uh, evolve rapidly enough. This is for all of us. There's no one that has the answers. All of you have to be part of the discussion and part of the debate. I just want to uh, comment something for you very quickly. 
And that is, <clears throat> I mentioned earlier that there is this triad of the basic science, the technology, and the society. The reason you are not seeing the debates in this country as you would like to see it is because, you know, if you look carefully at what are the essentials that made this country a great country, and you want to reduce it because we scientists like to reduce it. Uh, in my view, it's the three things. One is the governing system, which is democracy. Two, science and the innovation that we spend the time on. Without science and the, the great things that came out of this and the power that gave the United States, we could not uh, have done. And third, that people don't mention too much, is the work ethics that has has been in this country uh, for a long, long time, for a variety of reasons. But the, if you, so science, we leave it aside. Uh, work ethics, we say, although some of us seeing a little bit of decline, but we'll, we'll say it's, it's okay. Uh, but then when you come really to the political dimension, and so what are we doing right now in this country? We are we're having an election in two years. And all television stations are going around and trying to find out candidates and people and everything. So the whole country is being engaged for two years of time on an election. Uh, we have the divisions between the, the two big parties and the people days and night in the media is discussing. So we don't really have the time right now. And maybe, maybe, I'm not saying that this is going to happen, but maybe... This is about time now for the United States to uh, go back and think about what the founding fathers wanted and to perhaps tweak the political system uh, in order for this country to be going back to debating the serious issues that facing the future. Don't think that education here, even education, which we talk about the developing world, is threatened in this country. I mean, you know, when America scores the number 17 in mathematics on the level of the world, that leaves something to be thinking about. So there are very, very serious issues besides the technology and everything else. There are very serious issues for the future of the nation. And I believe the country doesn't have enough time right now in Washington to be discussing these very, very serious issues. But look at a positive over here. This lecture is being sponsored by Hamdani. You have Zuel in Egyptian. You have Wadwa in Indian here representing America. Okay. You know, <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that amazing? <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.